Hello and welcome to the Energy Efficiency Podcast, sponsored by EcoFlap Home Draft Proofing Products, the ideal fit and forget energy efficiency solutions, including the Pet Flap Draft Proof Pet Door. My name is Heather Lindsay and I'm the Communications Manager for EcoFlap. This weekly podcast will bring you a mix of news, products and tips all year round. We're interested in profiling people and products involved in promoting energy efficiency habits, products and information, so please do get in touch if you have something to contribute. You can reach me at heather at ecoflap.co.uk. This week, energy efficiency in zoos, competitions for energy efficiency innovation and mineral wool insulation. But before we get on with our advertise features... This week is Recycle Week, now in its 17th year. The week is run by Recycle Now, the national recycling campaign for England. Recycle Now is funded by the UK government and managed by RAP. RAP is the Waste and Resources Action Programme, a British charity that, quote, works with governments, businesses and communities to deliver practical solutions to improve resource efficiency. According to Recycle Now's campaign this week, things are improving. Recycle Now describes us as a nation of recyclers and says we're recycling more than ever before. 60% of households are now recycling more than they were a year ago, due, according to Recycle Now, to environmental concerns. As is often the case, this is partly driven by children influencing their parents to make changes at home. My own son asked yesterday if I could make a special effort not to buy things in plastic packaging, something he knows I already prioritise. He added, I know it means we won't eat anything because he's a savvy kid and knows that if you shop at the supermarket, it's hard to avoid plastic. Fortunately, I don't think it will be that bad. Recycle Now includes lots of resources on its campaign site to help you navigate the trickier areas of recycling. It has a list of awkward items such as computers, batteries, paint and light bulbs and provides a location-based search facility so that you can find out where to take them for recycling. It includes an alphabetical list of information about what can and can't be recycled. Sticky tape, crisp packets, cotton buds and squeezable tubes aren't recyclable. Printer cartridges, floor and wall tiles, building rubble and small electrical items often can be recycled but not curbside and you'll need to check with your local tip whether they take them for recycling. The campaign site profiles several people who are taking steps to make a difference. If I'm going to be critical, it's that it focuses on recycling rather than a habit change. Recycling your spray bottle pumps is a bit mm, when you could avoid buying them in the first place. Reminding your parents to recycle shampoo bottles is all well and good, but how about suggesting they use shampoo bars instead? Perhaps the clue's in the name. It's Recycle Week, not Reduce Week or Reuse Week. Perhaps, realistically, a campaign is more likely to get results if it requires only a small change of habit. So slinging something in the recycling instead of into the bin, rather than a big habit change, such as switching away from your favourite cleaning product or shampoo, Our small tip for Recycle Week is to have an easily portable recycling bin next to your ordinary bin. Absolutely zero effort is required to put recycling in the right bin. Ask a passing child to take it out to the green bin outside and empty it. They'll get a warm glow from feeling useful. Zoos present a particular energy efficiency challenge. 
They are constructs that keep animals in more or less artificially created areas and have to keep those animals comfortably housed, appropriately fed, cleaned out and cared for medically without compromise. That in itself is a huge challenge, especially for larger zoos, keeping a wide variety of animals from butterflies to ostriches. Add into that all of the energy considerations of running a visitor attraction, and you have at least two types of businesses to run. This becomes ever more of an issue as zoos increase the land available for their stock and turn a day at the zoo into a nature park adventure. Add to that the massive ethical onus of meeting the needs of animals whom we have put in a position to be unable to fend for themselves, and the whole thing is an enormous undertaking. On the other hand, there must be almost limitless scope to improve energy efficiency. All the standard considerations we've looked at week in, week out will apply to buildings mostly inhabited by humans on the basis that you're not going to ask the lions to turn their own lights out once the visitors go home. Feeding and transporting those humans can be designed to be energy efficient. As with all the sectors we've looked at so far, zoos can use the planned cycle of routine maintenance and equipment replacement to make sure all equipment is running at optimum efficiency and that new kit can be the most energy efficient that the budget can run to. Working with the planned cycle must be particularly important at a zoo, where you don't want to have to be clearing the chimps out of their enclosure for works any more often than is really essential. Three zoos come under the umbrella Zoos Victoria in Australia. These are Healesville Sanctuary, Melbourne Zoo and Werribee Open Range Zoo. The Australian Government's National Carbon Offset Standard has certified Zoos Australia as carbon neutral. To quote their site, Our residual carbon is offset in areas that have high eco-benefits in biodiversity protection and conservation, as well as community development. Zoos Victoria is working across a number of operational areas to reduce its energy use. As you can imagine, animal waste is a big feature of zoo life, something Zoos Victoria refers to as complex organic waste streams. With support from Maya Foundation, an Australian philanthropic organisation, the zoo has acquired a hot rot system. This takes not only animal poo, but also food waste from the cafe, animal feed and plant detritus. The end product is compost. Fun fact, 800 kilos of elephant waste is produced at Melbourne Zoo every day alone. At Hillsville Sanctuary, worms process animal waste, processing up to 400 kilos of waste a week. The Detroit Zoological Society is taking this one step further and using animal and human waste to power its animal hospital. Approved waste will go into its anaerobic digester. This will save the zoo about $80,000 a year, so the digester will pay for itself in about 10 years. Using animal poo to nurture the zoo grounds is standard procedure. Many zoos also sell it to the public for manure. Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle, USA, has used this to turn a $60,000 annual bill for disposing of animal poo into a £20,000 profit from sales of compost. Among the public buying compost from Woodland Park, there's stiff competition to get the rhino poo compost. However, not all animal poo is equal when it comes to composting. Because of disease transmission fears, no waste goes into compost from carnivores or monkeys. Zoos Victoria tries to show zoos internationally what's possible. It aims to send zero waste to landfill by this year. Incidentally, London Zoo currently sends less than 3% of waste to landfill. 
a large part of Zoo Victoria's strategy is dealing with visitor waste. What doesn't come onto the site doesn't need to be dealt with. So single-use plastic bottles are now banned from use or sale, along with straws and plastic bags. The rest goes into a three-bin system, separating types of waste as they're disposed of. Zoo's Victoria has considered its buildings. It's double-glazed its butterfly house and fitted lowered ceilings into exhibits. Computer screens have all been replaced by LCD screens. Older, inefficient computers have been replaced and computer-related power consumption has dropped by half. You don't have to be managing tiger packs or meerkat mobs to benefit from this type of measure. Zoo's Victoria has fitted heat pumps to manage both heating and cooling. The system is designed to make use of waste heat. As a concept, rather than specifically at Zoo's Victoria, this means that heat generated by cooling facilities in a penguin pool can then be used to heat the reptile house. Excess heat from that can warm the ground in the lion enclosure. Water management is another huge area to address. Melbourne Zoo has its own on-site water treatment plant. It collects water from rain, lake overflows and animal washdowns. Water is guided to a sedimentation pit where the solids settle and the water is sent for treatment. It goes through several filtering processes and is then sterilised and dosed with sodium hypochlorite. The result is cleaner than tap water. This water is used for watering plants, backwashing filters, filling lakes and flushing toilets. This measure has reduced the water Melbourne Zoo takes from the ground and ensures that it's meeting the water restrictions. The zoo is using around a quarter of the water it was using 20 years ago. Zoo's Victoria has monitored water pipes for leaks and identified major leaks to repair. Of course, water isn't just a consumable. For many creatures, it's their natural environment. Diergaarde Blydorp Oceanarium in Rotterdam, Netherlands, has a thorough filtering system. Its frequent filtering means that only 5% of water has to be changed. Fresh ocean water is brought in for the tropical fish. It's then used for the less fussy creatures, then goes to the sea lions, and finally ends up with the polar bears, who presumably aren't that fussy. This way, one set of ocean water is used multiple times. Sometimes zoos need new buildings. Staying in Australia, Taronga Zoo in Sydney has built a Green Star six-star certified building. Green Star is Australia's sustainable building standard, similar to Bream or LEED. And you can look back through previous episodes if you want to hear more about those. We have uh, an episode dedicated to each. The new building, the Taronga Institute of Science and Learning, has two solar rooftop systems. One provides electricity, the other a thermal system to heat drinking water. Taronga's lemur enclosure uses solar to power its underfloor heating, transforming more than 90% of the incoming solar energy into heat and reducing the zoo's emissions by about 8 tonnes a year. The zoo has fitted solar panels on the other buildings, some of which powers electric visitor buggies. All the zoo's electric buggies are now powered by clean electricity generated on site. Taronga Western Plains Zoo Dubbo has a smart elephant barn. Yes, elephants are smart, but in this instance it's the barn we're talking about. There are in fact three barns, all of which are powered by their own solar panels. The barn's construction provides increased insulation and has been designed to maximise the power of natural sunlight to heat the building throughout the year. The barn has louvers fitted, which automatically adjust to allow cross-ventilation. In a last lovely touch, 
A solar system similar to that in the Lima enclosure heats the elephants' sand beds. The volume of solar panels fitted at Taronga Western Plains Zoo allowed it to be accredited as a renewable power station in 2017. It's not resting on its laurels, though. A recent energy audit, that word again, measure and monitor so you know how to improve, a recent energy audit has shown that voltage optimization would allow Taronga Western Plains to reduce energy consumption further. The reduced work would result in a walloping 77% energy and carbon saving in the administrative buildings and Zufari Lodge. Zoos worldwide are proactively looking for ways to improve their carbon footprint and hit net zero. As part of the wider City of Helsinki's aim to be carbon neutral by 2050, Kokesari Zoo is making great strides in setting its own targets as a trailblazer for Helsinki's carbon neutrality plans. Kokesari plans to become carbon neutral by 2025, and work began on this in 2017. Kokesari is a particular focus of energy saving, as it accounts for quite a chunk of Helsinki's energy consumption. The zoo project will be implemented in small phases. As we've seen, this is essential when moving animals around is necessary to allow work to be carried out. The zoo has invited students from the Alto University School of Electric Engineering to come up with suggestions for energy use reductions. These students have written a paper titled Energy Saving in Helsinki Zoo as part of their coursework. It's long at 87 pages and is available to download. Follow the link in the notes. Taronga Western Plains isn't the only zoo to take energy generation into its own hands. Hamilton Zoo in Cambridgeshire, UK, generates its own renewable energy from on-site wind, solar and biomass. It sells its surplus energy to Opus Energy, a small supplier of electricity to businesses. Copenhagen Zoo has fitted solar panels as part of its energy saving and climate protection measures. In this case, though, the zoo uses all the power it produces. Another British zoo, Paynton in Devon, is using close monitoring of its animal enclosures to ensure energy is used as effectively as possible. Paynton was only the third zoo in the world to be awarded ISO 14001, an environmental management standard. It's installed heat pumps to keep exotic animals warm. Solar panels have gone on the amphibian arc exhibit and on the restaurant. This generates 50% of the electricity needed by the buildings. A solar array provides 80% of the hot water used by the restaurant. The crocodile swamp is heated by biomass. Effluent is treated by reed bed. Crucially, Paynton has installed monitoring equipment to keep tabs on its electricity, gas and water use. Information is collected from 40 different sites every 15 minutes. As we see, pretty much every week, having the information allows you to identify the weak spots and use your resources effectively. Franklin Park Zoo in Boston, USA, has taken a canny approach to keeping administrative buildings cool on the warmest days. It has installed an ice bear thermal storage solution. At night, the system makes ice when electricity is cheapest and often produced by the most efficient plants. In peak usage times, the air conditioning compressor is turned off and the stored ice used instead to cool the building. It lasts about six hours. Air conditioning is a huge energy issue, so using a system like this will make a contribution to keeping down fossil fuel use. Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden, also USA, received a grant from energy company Duke Energy to switch all its lights to LED. Cincinnati Zoo covers 80 acres and runs an annual festival of lights, so the energy-saving potential was enormous. 
but the replacement scheme has gone beyond just the zoo to the wider community. The Light Up Avondale project aims to extend the benefits of the LED switchover into the area around the zoo. LEDs will be fitted in homes and businesses and in areas where better lighting would help to discourage crime. Businesses are also benefiting from reduced energy and maintenance bills, while the project raises awareness of both the benefits of more efficient lighting, but also the grants and resources available. The work is being carried out by the Green Corps. This is a group of young adults specially trained to know all about different types of light fittings and bulbs. They've upgraded 65 homes to LED and have ambitious plans to do the same for the entire neighbourhood. While doing this, They're gaining skills and knowledge in energy efficiency, sustainability and more broadly transferable skills. This is part of the serving community element of Cincinnati Zoo's corporate mission. We've seen a number of instances of businesses wanting to be good neighbours and this is a shining example. Hello Kevin. Hello again and what are we talking about this week? Competitions. Have we won something? (laughs) No, I mean competitions that get people developing new ways of being energy efficient. Making new products or improving processes? Yes, but also developing new ways of generating energy, saving energy, or just a new perspective on how we can do things. So who runs these competitions and, and why? Well, there are lots to choose from, but let's look at the Solar Decathlon. This is a competition run by the US Department of Energy. So I'm guessing that's about developing solar technology? It started that way, but it's grown. It's now mushroomed to be 10 competitions. Uh, Hence decathlon, but not all just about solar. Uh, Taken together, they, well, let me quote, inspire student teams to design and build highly efficient buildings powered by renewables while optimising for key considerations including affordability, resilience and occupant health. The winners are those teams that best blend architectural and engineering excellence with innovation in how their building interacts with the world around it. Is it a big competition? Judging from the website, it's become pretty big. 45 teams took part this year from 37 colleges. All American? No, this is an international do. As well as the American version, there are solar decathlons held in Africa, China, Europe, the Middle East and Latin America and the Caribbean. So worldwide, pretty much. The African arm is running this month in Morocco, with teams taking part from Morocco, Italy, the USA, India, Mali, Burkina Faso, Algeria, Nigeria, Senegal, France, South Africa, Germany, Turkey, Egypt, Ivory Coast, Romania and so on. A truly international affair. So what are they competing to do specifically? In this competition, the categories are architecture, engineering and construction, market appeal, comfort conditions, appliances, sustainability, home life and entertainment, communication and social awareness, electrical energy and balance, and innovation. I'm just a list machine this week. So the teams have to design a house that measures up in one or more of those categories? Yeah. The US decathlon divides into two streams, the design challenge and the build challenge. So teams do actually construct buildings. How long do they have for that? It's a long weekend job. Well, I wondered that. In fact, they have two years to put up their building. This isn't a competition that takes place in one spot over a few days. Over the two years, real functional houses are built to demonstrate, and I quote, creative solutions for real-world issues in the building industry. Do the judges go and visit the building? No. The teams present to a panel of judges and it goes from there. 
Yeah, it's always nice to win something, but what does the competition really do for the student? I think the first point to make is that it's a huge learning experience, and it puts me in mind a little of the new university that's going live in Hereford very soon, Enmite, new model in technology and engineering. The point is that students engage with real-life industry problems and solve them in a hands-on way. By taking part in this competition and things like it, particularly the build element, students are putting theory into practice and coming out at the end having gained invaluable experience. And they get to showcase their ideas too. Yes, that's right. It's a great way to get your ideas in front of influential people. It's good for the colleges the students attend too, it's a feather in their caps, and shows how well they're preparing their students for the real world of sustainable building and living solutions. I think the term now is career ready. Or hit the ground running. The teams work with industry too, so those businesses get publicity, but they can also identify future employees, they can pick off the most promising. And this is very much the case too for the Future Generation competition run by Middle East Electricity in Dubai. This is designed for engineering students and has a different theme each year. What was this year's theme? Serendipitously, it was energy efficiency. As well as coming up with ideas to prevent overuse of energy and finding a cost-effective solution for reducing energy consumption, participants had to come up with a prototype and, crucially, find a testing partner. Right there, you've got your crossover into industry. So this is another showcase for the students taking part? Certainly is. 20,000 visitors visit the exhibits, that's not easy to say, coming from all over the world, and there are 1,500 exhibitors. It's a brilliant experience for a student, and it looks good on the CV. The winners get exposure to thousands of energy industry people, which I think is basically a way of saying they send out a newsletter to, you know, 60 squillion thousand people and your name will be on it. And who's eligible for that? Anyone who's a student at a university in the UAE, undergraduate or postgraduate. That, however, is a slightly grey area, as some British universities have a UAE campus. Harriet Watt, for example, better known as an Edinburgh University. One postgraduate student from its Dubai campus entered the competition with research into wind farms. That student gained valuable feedback on their work, that's always really, really important, and made useful contacts. They also felt they were representing their university. Another student saw that their work on digital circuits was inspiring other students, and they themselves gained insight into how to market their product, which lifted their focus from just the technical details. Making the leap from ideas on paper to running a viable business. Exactly. Sadly, ideas aren't enough, as we know. I'd say coming up with a good idea is the easy bit. That old saying still has a ring of truth about it. 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Isn't it just? But it's not just students hoping to win competitions. The UK government is funding a competition too, and again I quote, develop exciting new and intuitive solutions to turn energy data into energy savings for smaller non-domestic sites. That competition will help the government deliver its clean growth strategy, which we've talked about before. We have. Oh yes, in the social housing energy efficiency feature. The clean growth strategy is part of the government's efforts to meet the targets it set out in the 2008 Climate Change Act. How does this competition help with that? In a nutshell, the task is to help small non-domestic settings such as schools, hospitals and shops turn energy data into energy savings. The idea is that these small settings may well not have an energy manager or the time, energy, money to implement best practice giving them effective audit tools specifically tailored to their sort of setup that then translates into actions should help them achieve savings. The competition addresses how to use the data to make the changes. 
It's very valuable. Who's taking part in it? There are seven companies receiving part of the 8.8 million pot behind the non-domestic smart energy management innovation competition, which has the not very sonorous acronym NDSEMIC. Most companies aren't household names, but Samsung is one of the competitors. The projects currently being trialled include energy monitoring apps, online energy management tools, and school-focused teaching resources based on smart meter data. It's been suggested that the real aim behind the project is to make smart metering unavoidable and to support and justify its rollout. Accurate data from smart meters would be very valuable to government and energy companies. Which is no doubt why there's another competition focusing on it. The BEIS, Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, Smart Energy Savings Competition. This competition has a multi-million pound pot and is aimed at the domestic market. The money funds product development and in-home trials, and interestingly, BES is also after information on the impact of energy-saving products and services that work alongside the smart meter. Simply knowing your energy consumption doesn't equate to taking action, though. Exactly. We've mentioned this time and again. So BEIS suggests systems that offer energy use feedback to customers. It also suggests technology that helps residents use their heating controls effectively, how-tos, that sort of thing. Overly technical heating controls can be quite daunting to residents who've always been used to just turning a dial to a temperature or using analogue heating and hot water timers. It's really refreshing, I think, to see a customer focus recommended as well as simply energy use outcomes. So what do these winners win? They will receive funding to develop their product or service. Up to 700,000 is allocated to each project to trial. And have the winners been selected? Yes. Over £2 million has been allocated to eight projects. This stage develops the product or service, then a second phase sees it implemented for trial and evaluation. The projects talk about meaningful insights and actionable data. One draws on gaming principles, and more than one on allowing energy companies to deliver personalised products and services based on user data. Some require software to be installed on the smart meter and the use of an app. Others use what's there already. Machine learning and algorithms are involved to identify which customers will best benefit from which tweak. One compares a home's usage to similar properties in real time with heavy mention of the social. One project focuses on the potential of smart thermostats to reveal energy usage and works with Alexa and similar. One company with an IoT bent forecasts a customer's energy use over the coming week and allows them to make adjustments. Another looks at creating local markets for renewable power generation with smart metering in its heart. They sound pretty varied and, dare I say, interesting, although it may have privacy concerns and need oversight to prevent exploitation of vulnerable groups. Well, I thought so too. With maybe one exception, though, they meet the innovative element of the competition. Watch this space, I guess. Where do people go to read more about this? Oh, yes. There's a government PDF with details of the eight companies and their proposals. Follow the link in the show notes. My money's on the one that forecasts your energy. Mineral wool insulation. Mineral wool goes by a few names. You might have heard of mineral fibre, rock wool, which is actually a brand name, stone wool, or more used in Europe, glass wool. Technically, mineral wool is a fibrous material made by spinning or drawing molten mineral or rock materials such as slag and ceramics. Known as slag wool, it was first made in Wales in 1840. 
at that stage the fibers weren't bound in any way and they just floated about in the breeze which is incredibly hazardous for anybody in the vicinity 30 years later a patent was taken out in the usa and the following year mineral wool was produced commercially in germany it was made by blowing air across falling molten iron to create hair-like strands at the very end of the 19th century Technology was developed converting molten limestone into fibres and the rockwool insulation industry in America was born. In the 1970s and 80s, more types of mineral wool were developed and now more high-tech versions again have taken over. Generally, mineral wool will be based on either stone, glass or slag derived from industrial waste. Stone wool is made from volcanic rock, usually basalt or dolomite. Often recycled rock is used. Glass wool is made from sand or recycled glass, limestone and soda ash. The same ingredients go into windows and glass bottles, which is appropriate as those are some of what goes into producing glass wool. In fact, glass wool typically uses 85% recycled glass in its manufacture. After the fibres are formed, they cure in an oven. They're then cut to size and shape or go into other products. Any waste generated at this stage goes back into the manufacturing process. Because mineral wool is so elastic, it can be compressed for packing and transport. Urema keeps the water used for manufacturing in a closed-loop system. Urema is the European Insulation Manufacturers Association, representing mineral wool producers. It started out in 1959 to promote improved standards and regulations for the use of insulation materials, and has now developed that to address public concern about the environment. Emissions created by Urema during manufacture is cleaned in filters and afterburners. Partly because of this use of recycled products, mineral wool is cost-effective and has a reliable supply of ingredients. Manufacturers are always looking to increase the recycled content of the product. If you'd like to see diagrams of how the two types of mineral wool are made, follow the link in the show notes to the Urema website. The website makes the point that the manufacture of mineral wool, quote, positively contributes to industrial symbiosis. In other words, waste from one industry provides raw material for another. Mineral wool manufacturers take metallurgical slag, spent blasting sand and waste glass, known as cullet, to create an insulation material. This insulation material, in its turn, reduces the need for energy to keep buildings warm. Urema gives the statistic that for every tonne of CO2 emitted in manufacturing mineral wool, 200 tonnes are saved during the product's lifetime. As we've already seen, mineral wool has a long life as it's elastic and porous. Urema makes the claim that manufacturing mineral wool uses half the energy required to make other types of insulation, but doesn't quantify that or provide any evidence. Clearly, Urema exists to promote mineral wool, and its site must be read with that in mind, but nonetheless, mineral wool does appear to tick the boxes on recycled materials, closed loops and thermal performance. Fifteen years ago, Research was carried out into the carcinogenic potential of mineral wool. Some elements were identified as possibly carcinogenic. These are what is known as biopersistent, i.e. they stay within the body rather than being broken down. Examples of this are ceramic fibres which are used in high temperature insulation. That's sort of typically fitted to blast furnaces and other things which experience incredibly high temperatures. And in special purpose glass wool that isn't used as insulation. In the last 15 years, more biosoluble fibres have been produced which aren't damaging to humans. Mineral wool can cause itching if you come into contact with it. This is just a mechanical effect. 
Exposure to mineral wool dust is to be avoided, though, whether that's through skin, eyes or breathing it in. There is a maximum daily exposure limit to mineral wool, and this exposure can come in many forms if you're working with it. You could be removing it from a building, you could be cutting a slab to size, you could be drilling holes through a slab or, of course, fitting it into a wall. Wikipedia has the detail on the risks to health of mineral wool. The link is in the notes. Mineral wools possess good fire retardant properties. They're commonly used in buildings that specify passive fire protection. They're used as spray fireproofing, in stud cavities in dry walling, and as packing material in fire stops. Mineral wool is porous, so it traps air and provides high thermal insulation value. Its elasticity and porosity make it a good acoustic insulator too. Mineral wool is available as rolls and slabs, optimised for thermal and or acoustic insulation, and can be provided loose to be blown into spaces. It's stable, giving it longevity. There's not a lot to choose between glass wool or stone wool, but there are some slight differences. Stone wool has a higher density, so it can resist more pressure, but it has a slightly lower fire resistance. It's more elastic than glass wool and has a higher tensile strength. It's the density of the wool that determines whether it will be supplied in a lightweight roll, a flexible slab or a rigid slab. If you want to compare the different types and decide which might be best for your project, Nauf, manufacturer of insulation, has a comparison chart on its website. This November, Energy Live News is running its annual expo in London. It has a number of high-profile speakers lined up to cover a wide range of topics. You can hear about the energy achievements at Blenheim Palace, meeting the railway's carbon targets, landlord and tenant solar PV projects, and managing your energy costs this winter. Follow the link in the notes to book. And what are we up to? Annoyingly, there was a problem with our last set of pet flap cuts, so we're having to have them redone, and this means ordering more raw materials. So our timeline on the next batch is expanding more than we would like. This does mean, though, that there's more time to earmark a pet flap for yourself. Email info at ecoflap.co.uk to reserve one. We don't invoice till we're certain of the delivery date, so you don't even have to pay yet. Thank you for listening to episode 17 of the Energy Efficiency Podcast. Until next time, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram as Ecoflap, and on Twitter we also tweet as the Pet Flap. Next week, energy efficiency in student housing, the role of Ofgem, and the Champions of the Earth Award.